Hi everyone, welcome back to the Iris Pod. I'm delighted today to be joined by a customer experience expert, Jim Tincher. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on the Iris Pod. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Tom, likewise, glad to be here. Great, let's start here. Let's dig into a, to a question straight up. Um, your new book, Do B2B Better, is all about the customer experience and how, and how that should really be improved from a customer facing perspective and really, I guess, treating B2B customers just like humans as you would in consumer marketing, which has always been a, a passion of mine. Tell us a little bit about the book and what it means to, uh, to have the customer at the heart of your strategy. Sure, I, I did intend to write a book. Um, I probably wrote one, like that, that was a lot of work and didn't really intend to do it, but we were, we got together in early 2020, late 2019 and had been reviewing research that showed that most programs can't show that they're actually having any impact on the business at all. And we want to understand why some can, what are they doing that's different? So we just started out by talking with people, by doing some interviews. We're going to do 25, then 50, and then finally it was over 200 hours of interviews. And as we're doing this, a few things came out. First of all, that B2B is really underrepresented. The findings of the book are not specific to B2B, but the way you do some of it is different. And I talked to people, um, Olga, for example, was at the time with Aramex, and she said, if I wanna know how to map a consumer journey, all kinds of resources. If I want to understand how to work with B2B and the different layers of decision makers involved, that, that there's just almost no resources out there for that. And we kept hearing that. We said, okay, well, let's focus on B2B. Let's see what's different because the B2B relationship is far more complex. I used to work with Best Buy, a U.S. retailer, and Best Buy maybe have to convince a husband and wife or a child parent. B2B According to the latest research I've seen that you have committees of anywhere from 10 to 20 or more individuals conflicting needs that you all have to satisfy all of them and engage them. In fact, satisfaction typically isn't enough. And so we wanted to come up with a resource that highlighted great examples of people who are doing it right in the B2B, well, and B2B2C space. Because we do a lot of work in, for example, insurance and others that are B2B2C. And so we really wanted to highlight those and stop talking about Warby Parker, Amazon, Zappos, great companies, but it's really hard to apply that if you're a manufacturer or if you work for a software yeah, company. Right. We wanted to bring that through. And I was telling my wife, she said, oh, why are you writing another book? She asked me that way more than once. And I told her, I just can't get out of my head the things I've learned, that we need other people to hear about that bringing in the financial data, for example, doing the analysis, or creating an emotional North Star. I don't know if you do this, Tom, but apparently business customers do have emotions. <laughs> and the great programs measure that. But even in B2C, hardly anybody actually measures emotions. And so I, I went out and we, again, we did over 200 hours of interviews. I had a chance to shadow some great programs at UKG, at Dow, Walter School of Financial Services. We worked with the Customer Experience Professional Association to survey hundreds more, just to understand why is it that most programs might be doing good work, we call them hopefuls, they hope they're having impact, but there are some few programs, Pointless puts that one in four, so does customer think. Our research shows that's, that's 
aggressive, it's probably lower than that. But why are some programs able to do it? Um, while I was doing this, I read across some research by the Exum Institute that said that B2B programs are less mature than B2C. So in B2B, it's probably well below one in four that are able to actually show they're having impact. And so I wanted to discover those who are and bring their best practices to life. And so finally, I just decided to write another book because I was just so compelled based on what we learned, because it's not the common outcomes you'll hear. Ultimately, I mean, I, I used to bang on about this in some previous companies that I worked at that, you know, to be successful, particularly, particularly in, in a modern age where anyone can start a business. Um, right. it, it's, you know, the, the, the bar is a lot lower. There's tools and you know, digital solutions that can empower anyone with an idea, essentially, to build a business around it if they're passionate around it. Do you think we've moved into an era where we're really thinking more about the B2B buyer as a, as a human being? Um, and then you've got that complexity, like you just mentioned, around uh, the fact that there isn't necessarily one decision maker, but a number of different, the economic buyer and the solutions buyer and all those sorts of things. But do you think at the heart of this is just the recognition that at the at the core is a, is a human being or a, or, a, or a group of human beings? I would say that in customer experience, of course, we've always believed that. Now, those in our tribe are really focused on customers. And it's starting to become clearer that those individual motivations need to become part of the, the um, of the consideration. I don't think many organizations are good at it, but I think there is somewhat of a recognition, but actually let me back off from that because when I talk to a number of individuals, they feel the B2B decision-making is all based on price and value hmm. and especially price. And the research shows it's not true at all that actually the B2B purchasing decision is one of the most emotional decisions out there. You know, Tom, if you buy a um, phone and you buy the bad phone and the battery is always dying and it's rebooting all the time, you're annoyed. And that next time you probably won't buy from that manufacturer, but you are annoyed. That's about it. Yeah. If you are choosing operational software for your business and you make the wrong choice, you have to live with that for five to seven years. Although, Tom, you may not have to live with it because you may not be in that role anymore because you made the wrong choice. B2B decisions actually have far more emotional ramifications in B2C. And it's your job on the line. There aren't many more things more emotional than that. I know in the past, I've made bad decisions on vendors and it comes has way more impact on me than any B2C decision I've ever made. Yeah, so true. It's so true. And actually, I think some of the work that we've been doing lately, you know, thinking about our ideal customer and who the key decision makers are in the process of buying buying our software. And it really does help um, when you have an advocate internally that's really bought in to the to the concept oh, yeah. before you ever get to the, the economic analysis and the and the ROI over whatever kind of period of time. If you've got that internal advocate that's taking it up to their to their board or their management team, you're in a stronger position. Um, on the flip of that, one of the things that we've really noticed, and and uh, I'm never really a fan of it, that introduction that you get to the chairman or the CEO, and then they get on board and they push it down the team, you almost actually are uh, trudging through sand at that point because 
their team are there to protect their boss. Their team are there to find all the holes in it rather than be the advocates. Have you got any insights on, on how uh, companies should kind of tap into that buying motivation? Because um, I think it's something that particularly smaller businesses really come up against when they're trying to sell to maybe bigger companies. Well, it's all about social proof. And we looked at, uh, we, we worked with Walters Kluwer Financial Services. Now Walters Kluwer's, Walter Kluwer's uh, Compliance Solutions. And they sell products for banks to do, for example, lending. If in the U.S. you buy, you, you get a home, the bank doesn't want to keep up to speed with all the compliance regulations. And so they use Walters Kluwer to be able to handle all that for them. Hmm. And the CEB, now part of Gartner, came out with research a number of years ago saying that 57% of the B2B sales journey happens before the sales rep is contacted and that it's all digital. So Walter Skloor asked us to understand what's happening that 57%. And we did first a hypothesis mapping where we asked the team to say what they think the journey is about. And it was all digital. Downloading case studies, looking at spec sheets, so on there. And then we went out, we talked to bankers. And it's hard to think of a more rational role than a banker. Hmm. A banker feels like a very rational type person. And we talked to them about how do you make decisions here regarding who to work with? How do you select a vendor? And we heard over and over again that, yeah, we do all that digital stuff. That we, we do all that, but we do something else first. You see, I remember talking to one banker. He said, I go to all the websites. They all say they're compliant. They all, I've never yet seen a website that says they're, they're mediocre. You know, they all say they're great. I don't believe any of them. They, they, they all say they're great. They all say they're compliant. I don't care. What I do first is I get together with some of my fellow workers and we all call our friends. We call other bankers. I don't call somebody across town in my market. I don't want to talk to a competitor, but I will talk to somebody I met at a conference and I will ask him, and here's the critical word, who he or she trusts? Who do they trust? And I'll get a list of maybe three companies that my friends trust. Now, if your client, because this is done blind, is not on that list of three, I might invite them to the RFP. They have zero chance to win. Yeah. Because I haven't built trust in them. Gartner just came out with some research a few months ago. It was in the Harvard Business Review where they showed the B2B process. And they talk about two emotional outcomes matter than more than anything else. Do I have confidence in the information you're giving me? Because the information conflicts. I need to have confidence that the information you are giving me, Tom, is correct. And secondly, do I trust you? Two emotions are the most critical components to being successful in B2B sales. It matches very much how they're focused on the sales process. Most of our work is post-sales and customer experience, but it still applies. Those emotions that they feel towards your company are the most predictive of the financial outcomes of loyalty which is what in customer experience we should be focused on. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's funny, you just, you just touched on something which I, I, I want to dig into a little bit more and that whole idea of the cost of, the cost of, of um, acquiring a new customer you know, outweighs the cost of, of keeping a customer, but they're both super important, obviously. But mm -hmm. um, you know, how, how do you portray that trust that brand that customer centric you know just before we 
we went live on this, you were talking about every, every company says that they have the customer at the heart, or at least they think they do, but many f few follow through. So how do companies really portray that true customer solution brand outwardly to build trust, particularly when there may be a startup organization that's, you know, not necessarily well known out there in the market? Well, and that comes back to really, first of all, to portray it, it is to focus on the customer. There's a fair amount of research, it's a bit dated, that the most effective B2B programs focus on their customers' customers. So, Tom, if I can tell you something about your customers you don't know and help you create a better solution for them, you're far more likely to work with me. And that shows by taking the time to understand your customers, then I've, you're going to have more trust in me because I'm helping you be successful. Now, what a few programs do, not very many, this is one of the four actions we came across that the great change makers do. Change makers are those that can show they have impact, is they actually measure those emotions. Now, I'll, go to a, I'll be doing a keynote speech, and I will ask participants, what's most important in terms of loyalty? Is it effectiveness? ease, emotion, or likelihood to recommend. Now, last one's not a thing, but I still get some people answering that, you know, net promoter score fans, but most people will, will be get it right. That emotion is the best predictor of true loyalty. Hmm. Loyalty is not a survey score. Loyalty is calling you first, ordering more products from you, staying with you even when times are tough. Yeah. And they're right. That is that. And that's research. Forrester, Exum Institute both say that. But so do my clients like Dow and UKG. Both have measured this and they find that emotions are the best predictor of loyalty. And so they actually measure that. How Dow has found that enjoyability is the best predictor of those outcomes. And so they can measure that and they can use that to pivot on their experience. If Dow sees that for whatever reason, enjoyability is dropping, they know that in the future, they're going to see less business and they can go after that. Uh, we have a conference next month where Nancy um, Flowers from Haggerty is going to be speaking. Their emotional North Star is happiness. Hmm. Now for Haggerty, they can, if you're not familiar with Haggerty, it says you're not a car enthusiast, which I'm not. <laughs> they, they're a car enthusiast lifestyle brand. And um, they, their B2B relationship is with agents, B2C is with members. And for them, net promoter score is very predictive of loyalty, defined as retention and upsells. But they found that happiness predicts net promoter score. Now, what the change makers do is, first of all, they make that linkage. They can specifically tie their survey scores and their work to a financial outcome. Most can't. But then they also notice that emotions, the second action then, the first is that creating that link. The second action is identifying an emotional North Star they can use to measure the experience as well as a, as a design target. Does that, does that go all the way back? I can't remember who said the quote, but um, it's one that's stuck with me. Before you create a really exceptional customer experience, you have to create an exceptional employee experience. And if you can't live and breathe it internally, you're never going to really portray it externally. Um, you know, and I know people get hung up on net promoter score and likelihood to refer and all of these sorts of things, but is it more fundamental? Is it before you ever get to that transaction 
and how you build a team of people that live and breathe and enjoy the product, the service, whatever it is that they're selling and really feel that they're part of the journey. Well, that comes back partly to the fourth action, which is change management. And you're right. If you are having a difficult time getting your job done, it's very hard to create a great customer experience. No question about it. But focusing on B2B, in a typical B2B organization, 90% of employees have never met a customer personally. Yeah. And it's very difficult to create an experience if you don't understand who your customers are or what they want. I used to work with Best Buy. And I could go to a store any day and work, and I could understand that experience. Walters Kluwer can't really send their employees out to watch a banker process a loan. <laughs> that, that just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, Dow cannot send their manufacturing reps out to their customers' manufacturing lines and just poke around to see what's happening. Yeah. You can't do it that way. So it takes more deliberate change management to get the organization to think about the customer experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that we really push on that everybody really takes a keen interest in understanding, you know, who the customer is. And, um, you know, sometimes that can not be so logical for someone who's an engineer or, you know, I want to just code or whatever it might be, but right. to really truly understand it can allow you to really see the holes in a product or what it be, what it might be that is preventing a salesperson from selling and ultimately delighting, delighting the customer. Um, let me just flip to something, um, you know, maybe slightly, uh, slightly provocative. The global outlook financially looks like, you know, a shambles right now. Um, you can pin that on, you know, pandemic and, you know, uh, government, government bailouts to, to individuals and businesses over that course of time, which was highly necessary. You could pin it, certainly in the UK, a lot of rhetoric around that being down to down to Brexit. Whatever way you cut it, there, there's a there's an, an economic impact um, happening and, and maybe you're going to go deeper. Do you think programs around, you know, marketing budgets are sometimes the first to get cut, but do you think the customer experience investment is an area that's on the chopping block um, a little bit before other things that maybe are more defined as mission critical, or do you think we've now entered an era where these types of programs are seen as mission critical? Oh, I don't think we've hit that there at all. Uh, in fact, I've talked to a number of organizations. The hope organizations are cutting budgets because of the fear of a recession. Hmm. But if you look at what the change makers are doing, they often will tie their work directly to, for example, net revenue retention. What they look at is, what is my CEO concerned about? And they'll say, okay, they're obviously concerned with protecting revenue. Well, great. So what am I doing that explicitly ties to that? Most programs, they might do something to say, well, last year, the promoters, their promoters score fans, uh, attrited at a lower level than did the detractors. Marginally interesting, not very actionable. Yeah. But if instead what the change makers are doing is they'd say, the outcome we care about is not getting somebody to move their mouse a little bit to the right in the survey. The outcome we care about is spending more money with us, calling us first. A DAO, one of their outcomes is joint innovation. So start with what your CEO cares about. And then from there, say, how am I enabling that? And 
if the program can show specifically that by making these investments, we call it the um, customer experience loyalty flywheel. If they can show that by making investments, that the experience actually improves, that call times went down, that more self-service happened, that we delivered products more regularly, then there is an emotional connection. The next part, we engaged our customers. Next, that therefore they bought more and then we had a healthier business. Everybody believes in the flywheel, but the change maker was actually able to document it and to show each link in that chain that resulted in an outcome. Now, one of the people, um, I mentioned this conference we have next month, Ricardo Porta from Dow, I was talking with him last week and he has a specific chain where he shows how the, from how well they deliver their products, he has a complete chain that shows how that leads customers to buy more from Dow in the future. That's a great example of a change maker who can show that linkage. So therefore he can show his leadership, you better invest in me because I'm returning dollars. I don't think he uses that language, that's my language, but he's able to show that linkage. Therefore his revenue, his budget is much less likely to be cut because they can see this is an investment in the business. That's, that's interesting, tie it to the, tie it to the, um, to the CEO's objective and show how that's a ladder up to where, because quite often, you know, not speaking for, for, for our company at all, um, you know, Jacoby, our, our CEO and founder, the customer is at the core and, and we pivot and we find ways to, to really delight them and bring a solution that's gonna, gonna absolutely wow them and, and generate their own improvements to their customer experience. But let's, on, let's be honest, a lot of the time, it's the, it's the CEO or someone in a position of power that might be slightly um, less engaged in these sorts of programs and wants to see it budget invested in, you know, sales and, you know, maybe some kind of direct marketing activities or, you know, efficiency savings and product features rather than the things that actually glue all that together. Oh yeah, it was interesting. We'd do these interviews and I would, I would ask some of our questions up front were, if I were to ask you whether the customer experience is getting better or worse, how would you answer that question? Universally, surveys. I remember Lisa, she worked at Walters Kluwer, um, and she said surveys, and I had a high opinion for her. My heart started to break. And she said, but then I'd also look at, are we losing customers and gaining them? Are we adding, getting more or fewer calls to the contact center? She brought in the customer ecosystem data, hmm. that's the third action, to answer the question. So suddenly my heart's swelling again with pride because she's a change maker, it was fabulous. I would follow up with the second question, which is if I were to ask your CEO whether the customer experience can be better or worse, how would he or she answer that question? You'd see a pause and then the common answer was, well, the same surveys. Then I'd follow the third question, Tom. How would your favorite finance person answer that question? <laughs> and that the, the nervous laughter and the silence is what followed. And finally, I remember one person saying, well, Jim, you're assuming I know somebody from finance. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got me. You got me there. I, I did assume you might know somebody from finance. <laughs> But there were very few conversations between customer experience and finance. And now let's say, so Tom, you're now the CEO. 
and you have you can have enough funds to prove one project you have two in front of you project a will improve the net promoter score by 20 points that's pretty good project b will return a million dollars in cost savings well tom where are you going to invest your money you're going to invest in the cost savings. Even if you believe in the net promoter score, even if you believe that customer experience is a way to invest, it's really hard to say no to a million dollars in savings against a soft outcome. But if instead you'd worked with finance and you said that 20% increase, we believe, according to finance, and you have a finance person with you saying that, will result in likely $3 million in cross-selling and a million dollars in retention. Well, now you have a much more difficult conversation because a million dollars in cost savings versus $4 million in revenue. Now we can, now you're in the game, but very few can have that kind of conversation. And that's what a change maker does. Yeah. I think I remember, I remember a, a former, uh, boss, um, would do this survey. It was kind of a an internal, very basic net promoter score. I called it the happy face survey out of five from a very sad, <laughs> from a very sad face to a very happy face. And they would repeat this survey. They'd be sending this survey. I think we should do another happy face survey and they'd send it out. And they would do nothing in between to really impact the results. It became just a comfort blanket of, oh, the smiley face overall was a little bit happier. And I think net promoter score, actually, I, I'm a big, I am actually a big fan of, of net promoter score, but I think it's almost sometimes something that people, companies do just to kind of, oh, my score's that, without any real activity to transform it, without a real understanding of, you know, improving that score and how it ties back to, um, to uh, to top line revenue and actually bottom bottom line as well over a, over a longer period of time. Um, so, Tom, before you move on, there, I want to quickly yeah. pause. I'm a big fan of whatever score predicts loyalty. Yeah. Now, for Nancy at Hagerty, it's a great predictor. It's fantastic. So, for her, I love Net Promoter Score. Roxy Stromenger is at UKG. When she came in, they used Net Promoter Score. It didn't predict anything. Hmm. In that case, I hate the net promoter score. Yeah, that's a good point. When we looked at across our um, our studies, what we found was that some of the change makers used net promoter score, some didn't. Almost every hopeful organization used the net promoter score. It's not that the net promoter score does or does not make a change maker. It's that the really effective program started with what score best measures what we're trying to accomplish. Hmm. If that's a net promoter score, then let's go with it. The hopeful organization said, well, we should do customer experience because we read some articles that said it's really good to do. Those articles mentioned net promoter score. Let's do that. Yeah. Without taking the time to say, does likelihood to recommend actually predict the behavior we're trying to create? And that's where look, the most effective organizations aren't reporting on sentiment. They are discovering and managing behaviors. That's what we need to be looking at as a tribe is how do we change behaviors, both in our company and of customers to create better outcomes for everybody. Yeah, I really like that additional bit of context. And we're actually gonna dig into uh, technology and, and connect that to 
to sentiment, but I'm going to do a bit of shameless self-promotion now for everybody out there right. who um, may have not already downloaded the Iris white paper on the role of the role of audio in an increasingly digital world that rolls off the tongue. Um, we printed it in a glossy brochure, which if you attend any of our events later this year, you'll be able to grab a copy. But you can get a copy right now for free by going to iris.audio forward slash white paper. Um, it's a great read. I'm just checking, is that the URL? I'm getting thumbs up from the team. I got it right, Jim. Um, right. Uh, you can download that for free. And if you're, uh, we've now actually done a cut down version, which is specific to call and contact centers. If you want that cut down copy, um, hit us up at support at iris.audio and the guys can ship out a version to you. Um, sorry for that brief interlude, uh, Jim, but we- oh, Can I use that though? Yeah. So that was another part of our research is that the most effective CX programs were using 50% more technology to measure and improve their experience than the rest. So everybody listening, yes, you need to be thinking about technology because it is something you absolutely need to have to create a better experience. So get that white paper. <laughs> Thank you for that additional bit of promo. And actually, you know, this is an area that our core proposition really connects to. So contact centers that have moved, uh, well, one, it was an industry that moved 100% virtual during, um, during the pandemic, pretty much. And they had to ship out uh, a laptop or a computer and a headset and connect to a, a Wi-Fi at their home and then conduct all of these calls. And really, background noise became a bit more of an acute issue. And actually, that white paper talks to the fact that 89% of contact center agents think that background noise is detrimental to the performance of their job as a contact center agent, whether they're in sales or service. And actually, even more concerning, 69% said that the background noise um, effect either around them or at the customer end that they can hear affected their mental well-being. And I think such a startling stat in a world where if you don't enjoy your job, which we talked about earlier, how could you ever do a good job for customers? I'm surprised it wasn't 100% because you're right, that background noise, that how do you do well in your job when you've got that background there? And with the pandemic, I'm in my basement, well, many of us are um, still, and that's absolutely critical. Yeah, absolutely. And really, you know, we are, we are a, a SaaS solution that you know, many contact centers are now deploying, plugging it into their existing um, uh, stack of solutions, whatever they're using. But just talk to us about that point you made, that technology to enable a good customer experience. Because I think probably most businesses would then go measurement. We need technology to measure it. But what are the other technologies that are out there that can help companies actually deliver a better customer experience? Well, and it, it fed in two categories. One is measure. A VOC, everybody has. Whether you're hopeful or a change maker, over 80% has. It wasn't that. One of the critical areas was actually showing the health of the customer through a dashboard. Most programs will have a dashboard that shows net promoter score or whatever the survey metric is. The executives will log in once a year just before bonus time. That's it. <laughs> when I was visiting Dow, um, they were showing me their dashboard that incorporated the customer ecosystem data. So on-time delivery, get it right, the behavioral, operational, financial data. And I love, this is my very favorite business problem in CX ever. They had a thousand licenses for their dashboards. They ran out of licenses. 
It's so many executives logging in regularly because what they cared about was the operational data and the team embedded the sentiment as part of that. They brought, they used the operational data to bring them in and then create the sentiment. So it's, as far as reporting, there's dashboards that are there, journey mapping software, which I never would have believed was important. We've changed our practice because we found that's actually really important, as well as journey analytics to really understand the real part of the journey. One of the areas that we see emerging is journey orchestration. A big fan where you are actually changing the journey in real time, creating what I call a journey of one. Anticipatory experiences that are designed around the individual customer. Now, clearly that's more common B2C, but we have a case study in the book on um, Schneider Electric, how they used journey orchestration in the B2B space to engage their electricians and other B, uh, business customers. And so that's another area I see coming in. Those are the high level categories, but the main thing is that the effective customer experience leaders are articulate with understanding what our technology is today and are bringing the right solutions to both measure and more importantly, to change the experience. I really like that, that customer of one. Um, that's certainly something that you know, has has been a, a bedrock of of initiatives over my my career, and I and I do see ways that you can do that in in B two B now. You know, uh, I mean, LinkedIn. We were talking about this just the other day. Uh, the team here, LinkedIn, just is such a valuable tool. Um, I guess what it, it's it's quite phony sometimes, though, isn't it? That one to one. You know, it's like almost they they may as well just leave my name and company out of it because you know it's just an, it may as well just have ne dear insert name here i love the work that you're doing at insert company name here we should talk sometime and it's like how do you get that authenticity and true kind of one-to-one -one whilst doing it at scale well that's that is it you're, you're right on the issue there i for a while i had a bullet space gym as my first name so people would Best be, hey, bullet space gym. I knew that was, <laughs> they clearly spent no effort whatsoever in trying to figure out who I am. Uh, if I decided that was just a little wacky, but that was it for a while. I mean, the, the first part is to actually have individual conversations, to have the ability to have at least targeted communication. Now, I don't expect Cisco is going to individually talk to each one of their customers. There will always be some level of that. Yeah. But it's then bringing in the data to actually make sure that the content is relevant for the individual. Um, even at my company size, we still do some mass communications, but we also collect the data to say that this is important for this customer and not for the other. Let's not send a message if it does is irrelevant. And if we don't know if it's relevant, then don't send the message. Yeah because you're not helping your brand, you're not helping your customer experience, your prospect experience, if you're putting out generic information. Once a week, I get a LinkedIn message asking if people can help me with my contact centers. Now I have 15 employees, exactly zero work in a contact center. Uh, they simply have a list that says, I'm in customer experience, therefore I must have a contact center. Let me send a mass message to personally invite me to help my contact center through that vendor. 
you're not helping yourself. You're actually hurting yourself. It takes the data to understand what are my customers interested and targeting the right message to the right customer at the right time. It's uh, it's the old foundation of marketing and it's stood the test of time. <laughs> like, there's a reason that great companies do that because they, they've taken the time to understand their customers and build compelling messages built around that individual customer. Um, we're, we're, we're almost out of time here, Jim, which is a, a shame because uh, I could talk about this for, for hours. Um, but I wanted to kind of finish up on, on voice and um, mm -hmm. an audio as part of the, the customer experience. And I want to talk about this in two ways. I guess one is the kind of sonic branding, ident kind of angle. Um, you see much more proliferation of audio being a component in a company's brands and the recall element. Um, but actually more important than that is voice being uh, more of a premium touch point between customer and business. And um, we went through a bit of time there where chatbots and things, which are still going to be there, were the order of the day. But it feels like voice is gaining momentum again. Contact center seats globally are on the, on the increase when they were declining previously. Um, where do you see audio in terms of the branding side, but also then voice in terms of the customer experience? And how can companies get each side of that right? Well... Part of this that you referenced, the easy calls are now being handled self-service. Hmm. You have chat bots, you forgot your password, great. You don't have to call anybody anymore for that. All the easy conversations, the two minute calls, those are largely gone, which means those that we, those that we, we still have are absolutely critical to retention. When we look at loyalty, the importance of each individual call has gone far more important because if it was an easy question, they've already taken care of it. And audio is absolutely critical, both from a having you know, clear voice and audio is important, obviously, to create a good experience for your customers. But then also we found that when we look at the great programs, they aren't using text to communicate internally. They are using audio. They're using the literal voice of the customer. I remember a VP at United Health Group spoke at a CXPA event like six, eight years ago where he would bring in call recordings to meetings, just bring that literal voice of the customer in. We all are social beings and the literal voice of the customer is important. And when we are interacting with somebody, it's often a highly, because again, if it's easy, it's taken care of, it makes it a more emotional experience. That's where the quality is really important to get across so that you can hear the inflections, you can hear what's really happening in the conversation. We got a product for that. That's good, isn't it? Guys? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, we're certainly seeing a lot more by way of speech analytics, um, you know, sentiment analysis from the voice and so forth. And actually, there's a study by speech, uh, Speechmatics um, that said uh, 80 plus percent of businesses saw speech analytics and voice as a key component to their, to their business strategy going forward. But 77%, I think, was the number thought that the quality of the actual audio undermined the ability to glean key insights from it. So quite a, a, a key insight and you make the point well, you know, if you're going to play that call recording, even at a board meeting to kind of get the point across, if it's, you know, bogged down with background noise and problems in the, in the audio quality, then it's probably not going to be that engaging for the audience that you're trying to get involved in that sort of 
um, that sort of insight analysis. Um, but I do, I really agree and I really love your point around voice is no longer the two minute easy things, FAQs, chatbots, online chat maybe, um, but it's really where the value is, right? That the voice now oh, yeah. exists. Yeah, and it, it's going to become much more emotional because we're only dealing with the big issues. Mm. That's make, that really heightens the importance. Jim, I've absolutely loved this conversation. Um, I can't wait to see your, uh, to read your new book, Do Be To Be Better. Uh, I think it's due to be released on the 4th of October. Is that right? Customer Experience Day. That's right. Yeah, oh, I didn't yes. plan that, but I was very happy when the publisher told me it's coming out on, on October 4th. Like, oh, yeah, Customer Experience Day. That is perfect. Excellent. Um, available on Amazon, bookstores. Yes, wherever you like to get your books, you'll find it there. Excellent. And I reckon there'll be a lot of people um, for the from the audience of the of the Iris Pod that will be interested in more about what you do. Um, heartofthecustomer.com is where they can find out a bit more about you. Um, is there any other places that they should be headed? Any particular keynotes or things that they can go and watch? Well, we have a conference here in Minneapolis, October 18th, where I brought in the customer experience leaders that inspire me. Uh, literally, everybody I called to be part of it said yes, so I got the first team here. Uh, they are all B2B, uh, one B2B2C, but they're all focused on that and really taking those four actions we talked about and bring them to life in what they really do. I'll kick off the day with a keynote, but after that, it's all practitioners sharing what they really do. So that's a key um, that's a key opportunity there. I also have some webinars on customer experience today where I'll be sharing more from the book as well. That's great. Well, check that out, guys, if you're interested. Uh, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope we can chat again soon. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. Guys, thanks for joining the Iris Pod. This has been a really enthralling session with Jim Tincher. Remember, download the white paper, iris.audio forward slash white paper. We're gearing up for the CCMA conference that's happening later in October, at CC Expo at London Excel in November, also the business show in November at London Excel. We'll be at all of those things. Come and check us out. Jim, thanks so much. See you later, guys. Bye.